Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And today is Monday, May 24, 2021. Monday, Monday, Monday. A lot of Supreme Court activity in recent times. Absolutely. Connor, it's, I gonna... mean, I think it's the central issue of uh, this period of the Biden presidency. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's the Trump presidency that's having the influence mm-hmm. and the impact probably with the three appointees by Donald Trump. So we're going to talk about whether the Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe versus Wade and turn the abortion debate upside down. Uh, We're also going to talk about whether court decisions should be retroactive. And that could sound a little boring inside baseball-y, but actually it's kind of important because... Yeah, people behind bars think it's very important. Yeah, because a a big retroactivity decision uh, could determine whether thousands of criminals will be allowed to walk the streets again. We're also going to get into uh, whether spousal rape should be punished just like non-spousal rape. Spoilers, uh, it's a pretty easy answer. There's nothing tricky about that. (laughs) No, but California is an outlier in a way Mm -hmm. you might not predict. And at the very end of the podcast, we're going to have a little bonus round. We're going to address the question of whether math is racist. Mm -hmm. Many people believe it is. Mm -hmm. And also, we're going to talk about the stupidest and the smartest presidents of them all. Oh, the God. survey is in, and we now know the IQ scores of every single president. It's amazing we were able to time travel and get those. I'm very oh, impressed. Might shock you. Well, yeah. historians have been digging into the archives. Reconstructing. Yes, they know exactly how clever Zachary Taylor oh, was. Oh, my God. Uh, so let's talk abortion. Is the Supreme Court poised to overturn it? So the Supreme Court has decided to jump into the emotional abortion debate, which is surprising, Connor, because ever since the famous 1973 Roe v. Wade case and then the 1992 Casey decision where the high court upheld Roe, people have been wondering, you know, what might the Supreme Court do next about abortion? Right. So we may get the answer soon. The justices have agreed to take up a case challenging a Mississippi law that bans all abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. Now, the Supreme Court's current position under Roe and Casey is that uh, before a fetus is considered viable, which is generally considered about six months, so before the fetus is viable, could leave outside the womb, a woman does have a right to choose to have an abortion. And pro-life forces are hoping that the high court, by taking up the Mississippi case, is signaling its willingness to revisit the legality of Roe. And a lot of court watchers are saying the decision really might come down to Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, Donald Trump's first Mm -hmm. two high court appointees. Do you uh, think pro-choice forces should be uh, big time worried, Connor? Oh, absolutely. I I think that, I mean... Planned Parenthood v. Casey wasn't even the beginning of the end. There were cases before that that were the beginning of the end. But really, Roe versus Wade has been under attack its entire existence. Uh, the, the, the conservative, pro-life, anti-abortion, anti-choice, that is, whatever you want to call it, uh, 
movement has been attempting to find an angle and a case and a friendly panel to be able to undo Roe v. Wade. And it's not like they're, you know, hiding it, of course, that's their goal. And it has been for many, many years. But now, unlike in those previous circumstances, now they've got a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court. And this is why uh, uh, so many conservatives are concerned about the the current makeup of the court and their, their, you know, talking about court packing, um, because the conservatives have successfully manipulated, packed the court to arrive at this point. You know, Mitch McConnell holding the seat open, refusing to, to uh, you know, have a, a confirmation hearing um, on a, a, a an Obama appointee, Merrick Garland. And the outcome of that is now that we have a 6-3. And the, the difference between a 6-3 and a 5-4 is pretty big. That's massive. That means that you can lose any conservative on the panel. Somebody who has previously been, uh, you know, air quotes, swing vote or uh, the moderate or whatever else, um, like John Roberts uh, in some circumstances, uh, has no power here uh, to to prevent uh, the, the harder core conservatives on the court uh, from undoing Roe v. Wade. And this case that is now being brought up um, has the potential to say, uh, okay, we had previously talked about um, pre-viability bans, right? The idea of, well, you you can't, it would be, so there's, there's something called the undue burden standard. And it, the undue burden standard just says, well, some rights are very important, and if they're an important category of right, then we put them in the category that if you if if a law places an undue burden on that right, then it is unconstitutional. And in this important. case, the, I think the undue burden standard has been t- interpreted to mean, okay, you can express a concern about the safety of the mother's health. Right. You can express a concern about, well, gee, uh, are the hospitals, do they have up-to-date equipment? Are the doctors qualified and so on? But if, in fact, what it appears to be is that you just want to get rid of the right to abortion, we will deem that to be an undue burden. It's not a reasonable burden right. on the right. To protect, you know, safety yeah. and so on. So that that's the context in which undue burden yeah, is used. Yeah, big here. picture. The Supreme Court. This is uh, constitutional law 101. The first thing you learn in constitutional law after Marbury versus Madison, which says, "What the heck does the court even do?" Right. The next thing you do is that every single Supreme Court decision that involves a constitutional right, which most of them do, because otherwise it's not a constitutional issue, is it? They're going to look at this case under different standards. And the strictest standard that offers the the right in question, here the right to abortion, but maybe the right to free speech or whatever else, offers it the most protection is called strict scrutiny, right? You if you if somebody places a restriction on free speech uh, in uh, you know and the content of the free speech, or like, if they their law says black people will be treated one way and white people will be treated another, right? That the raises Court, racial rights yeah. and racial issues that would trigger the strict scrutiny. And so the court says we're going to look at this really hard. We're going to look at this you know really really strictly and say you've got to have a really good reason to restrict this right. Okay, that was what how they interpreted the case in Roe v. Wade, and then in the nineties. Uh, they said the abor- right to abortion was right was the right to came from the right to privacy, which comes from the penumbras and emanations of this other right, blah blah blah. But it's there; it's in the Constitution, and it deserves strict scrutiny. And then in 1992, in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, sorry, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, uh, the court said, "Oh yeah, well we're going to roll that back a little bit. It's just an undue burden standard, not a strict scrutiny standard. So we're not going to look at it so strictly. But if they place an undue burden on the right, then that's you know." Uh, uh, and then the other change that that Planned Parenthood. V. Casey 
brought in that uh, you know changed the way we look at abortion was Planned, uh, Planned Parenthood said, uh, rather Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the opinion said, uh, we shouldn't be using this sort of arbitrary trimester standard, the dividing the, a pregnancy into three three-month chunks. It's kind of bizarre and arbitrary and not much medical basis for it. Um, and which is true, there's not much medical basis for it. But they tried to say it's really about viability. And because after 1992, they said this uh, this law that was examined in, in that 1992 case placed a burden on uh, on women to get a, to, you know, a hurdle to jump over. It was a parental consent law, I believe. Um, you had to you know get your parent to sign off uh, on you getting an abortion if you were even if you were uh, pre viability. And the court said you can't put that kind of restriction on a woman trying to seek an abortion if she's pre-viability. Right. This case now, today, uh, as we as we look at it coming down, which will probably happen in the second half of this year, um, that threatens to undo that change, allow states, because it'll be individual states that are passing laws in this case that restrict access to abortion, allow individual states to place burdens on people seeking abortions that are pre-viability, where the fetus is pre-viable. So in this case, we're talking about six weeks into uh, the pregnancy. If a woman is six weeks pregnant, she is subject to this uh, state law uh, that is a blanket ban on abortion, as I understand it. And, you know, there's a lot of elements that are going into this case, but that's basically what it comes down to. Is the Supreme Court are even five of the six conservatives in this case going to be okay with a state placing a blanket ban on abortion for non-viable fetuses and saying, you know, we're going to change the way we look at this. Maybe they're going to change the standard again. Maybe they're going to say undue burden is too high a bar. Maybe it's just going to be, oh, abortion rights aren't that important. So we don't look at it with strict scrutiny. We don't even look at it with undue burden. We just look at it with, well, a deal is it really who cares so if they you've, restrict you've people? teed this issue up quite well when i mean we- six weeks here come on six right. weeks most people at six weeks they've missed that means that they've they have missed their uh yeah, their period even, they by don't even two know weeks. they're pregnant right they exactly don't even know they're pregnant it's wild so uh, connor you've teed it up very well when we come back we're going to talk about the specific justices on the court and see whether it really is realistic to think that roe versus wade will become history but first connor is going to tell you how to rate and subscribe too many lawyers yeah so check us out on your podcast podcast platform of choice. That's Stitcher or Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Podcast Addict or anywhere else you get us. Each one of those has its own rating system. And we would love, we would very, very, very much appreciate you leaving us a five-star review and a comment talking about how great we are on each of the platforms that you use uh, and also hitting that subscribe button. We'll be right back on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Laura Lopes. And I'm Connor Lopes. Talking about the abortion decision that is going to be issued by the U.S. Supreme Court sometime in the next several months. They have taken up a case involving a Mississippi law uh, that restricts abortions. Uh, uh, the uh, Mississippi law says that uh, any time after the 15th week of a roughly 40-week pregnancy, uh, abortion would be illegal. So let's talk uh, about some of these possibilities that you were getting into uh, in terms of what might happen uh, out of right. this, this court. Number one, they could totally toss Roe versus Wade. They could say abortion is murder, 
There is no right to abortion under any circumstances. Yep. There is no right to privacy under the Constitution yep. that translates to a right to abortion. That would have massive implications for any privacy law issue you want to talk about. Absolutely. Right. Because they might say the Constitution really does not recognize a right to privacy. The word is not in there. And second, they would say even if it did uh, if, if find itself in there, abortion doesn't fall under that privacy umbrella. So no state may permit abortion. That would be option and another one. And the in that option... In that scenario, if that goes down, we have to, as I as I you mentioned with other you know right to privacy issues, you think okay, well the government spying on me is privacy issues. There are other issues that come under the, the umbrella of protected by the constitutional right to privacy as interpreted by the Supreme Court previously, like birth control, for example. Mm-hmm. The, we, you could have outlawed birth control uh, under the exact same logic. In the early 60s, the Supreme Court in the Griswold case exactly right. addressed that, that question about a birth control. So that's uh, option number one, the nightmare scenario for the pro-choice folks. Uh, option two, uphold Roe, but narrow its scope. Say, maybe grudgingly, okay, I guess the right to privacy exists here, uh, but the right to choose an abortion exists under only limited circumstances. For example, states are free to restrict the right to abortion. Uh, say, no abortion after a certain number of weeks, a mandatory counseling first, give the husband a chance to object in court, no abortion except at a facility meeting certain staffing and equipment standards, no doctor doing an abortion without admitting privilege at certain hospitals, a waiting period. You've got to inform the parents if the mom is underage. All of these restrictions might be fair game. Right. Third and final option that the court might be thinking about is to reject this Mississippi rule, no abortions after 15 weeks, uh, as a violation of Roe uh, and subsequent later opinions. Now, you might ask yourself, though, if they were just going to say, well, we reject the Mississippi rule, it's already been rejected by the lower court, the Court of Appeals. Why would it be necessary for the high court to take up this case unless they wanted to say something really important and new and fresh about abortion? But then you turn around and recognize it only takes four votes among the justices right. to take a case up, and you need five yes. to get a majority decision. Yes. So it could well be that the three liberals on the court, uh, excuse me, uh, th- that only four of the nine justices wanted to take this up, and that could be the, the justices who we know are against abortion. Clarence Thomas really is the only one who has come out and, and said that he is absolutely against the right to abortion. I mean, Amy Coney Barrett it. in our confirmation hearings wouldn't say that Griswold, the contraception case, was rightly decided. I mean, she is is also very religious, um, a Catholic subsect. Yeah, and, She's and, very likely to be extremely anti-abortion, right. personally. So Amy Coney Barrett and uh, Alito and Thomas are the three justices who are most likely to do something right. big time in yes. terms of restricting abortion rights. Yeah. We know that on the liberal side, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor, you can take the deed to the House of Vegas yes. and bet it. Yes. And it doesn't matter what the odds are. You know that they are not going to restrict abortion rights. Mm-hmm. That leaves three justices. And Chief Justice Kavanaugh, Roberts. Right. So Chief Justice Roberts, a lot of people think that, especially with his track record of having saved Obamacare twice, that he is not prepared to kick, uh, uh, to reject public opinion, uh, that he is very concerned about his legacy and he's not going to join what some would regard as the extremists on the right and be known as the guy that facilitated the destruction of Roe versus Wade. If, yeah. you, if you look, for example 
uh, at uh, at opinion polls. Uh, 69% of Americans a couple of years ago agree with Roe versus Wade. Just 28% wanted to see it overturned. Do we really think Chief Justice Roberts is going to join Clarence Thomas and say, hey, big news, folks, Roe versus Wade no. is in the dustbin of history? I, I, I don't, don't think, think so. so. No. Which means... That he's going to join the liberals, so now you've got four on the liberal side. That means you've got to have one of the two additional justices right. that you mentioned, Gorsuch, Gorsuch Kavanaugh. and Kavanaugh, uh, to to really move against the right to abortion. Now, I, we've looked into uh, some of the uh, decisions by Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. I want to run a couple of cases by you, Connor, and see what you uh, think about this. Mm-hmm. Gorsuch uh, dissented in a Louisiana case uh, recently. Uh, where they reject the court rejected uh, Louisiana restrictions on abortion rights, and that suggested he would be hostile to Roe, but maybe not because he uh, he said Roe is bad not o- not only because it was wrongly decided, but be, or this uh, Louisiana case, but because it warped other aspects of American law. He said Roe versus Wade wasn't even an issue. The question is our willingness to follow traditional constraints of judicial process when an abortion case arises. In the Louisiana case. The law required hospital privileges by abortion providers. Gorsuch's view was the judiciary should not replace the judgment of the legislature with the court's opinions. So it's kind of murky. I don't really think the signals point there that Gorsuch would be a reliable vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. It is murky, that's for sure. The other vote uh, would be Kavanaugh's. Now, he dissented in this Louisiana case as well. He didn't tip his hand on Roe. Instead, uh, he was okay with with a a Texas law involving abortion because of a factual question. He said it's no big deal to force doctors to get admitting privileges. Uh, He did, in a 2017 speech to the American Enterprise Institute, praise Justice Rehnquist's dissent in Roe, saying he agreed agreed with the view that an unenumerated right, privacy is not listed in the Bill of Rights, has to be rooted in the traditions of the conscience of the people. And given the prevalence of abortion restrictions in the 70s, Rehnquist could not say that the people really believed in the right of abortion. But again, things have really changed since the 1970s. And I think all the justices have one eye on the public opinion polls. True. So I I think the bottom line is that there's no it's not a guarantee at all that Roe versus Wade is going to be rejected by this court. So if if Clarence Thomas and probably Amy Coney Barrett and, and Alito were in charge and all they needed was three, we would have a fetal personhood opinion on our hands. These are laws that uh, the abortion, uh, uh, anti-abortion activists uh, started throwing out in super conservative states that were rejected, even in those states uh, in you know 20 years ago, 30 years ago, where they said, look, life begins at conception. Um, we, you know, a fertilized egg is a baby. Uh, anything that kills one is uh, is murder. And that those laws were too problematic even for, you know, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi con- level conservative voters uh, in these, you know, amendments to their state constitutions uh, because they imply implicated problems like in vitro fertilization. Like if you have in vitro fertilization, uh, you end up limiting the number of uh, of viable uh, fertilized eggs so that you don't have sex tuplets after you uh, after the, pro- the process sometimes. And you have IUDs, like a copper or a hormone-based IUD, intrauterine, intrauterine device that uh, prevents either implantation or uh, 
uh, ovulation. It's it's unclear based on which mechanism you use, and, and the science is sometimes uh, you know out uh, still out on that. But those could be construed to be killing a fertilized egg, and therefore uh, fetal personhood would be implicated. These are extreme laws. I don't think there's any world where we do that because you're right. The justices have an eye on the public opinion polls, and they know that the judiciary judiciary act of 2021 is out there. And yeah, Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to bring it to a floor for a vote, but sponsors like Mondaire Jones and Jerry Nadler are behind it and saying, look, we do want to bring this to a, uh, to, to a vote at some point once people have a chance to read it and think about it. And it's out there. It's a loaded gun pointed at the Supreme Court that says, we know that this court has been stacked with activist conservative judges who want to dramatically change the country in a way that the American people and the American voters overwhelmingly do not want to do. If you take you know, these dra- dramatic, drastic steps, like overturning Roe v. Wade with some sort of out off the wall fetal personhood version of a all abortion being banned in the entire country uh, opinion, that is going to dramatically change public opinion as to whether the court is expanded to 13 justices. I mean, that is the sort of thing that could really get that kind of a law moving uh, and, and actually get it, uh, you know, some momentum behind it. Now, is Joe Manchin going to go for Supreme Court expansion right now? No, but he might in six months if this sort of opinion uh, it comes down. That, I think, it really goes to your point. These justices know that their legitimacy comes from people believing that they are legitimate. It is the, the public opinion that props up the Supreme Court, just like the Supreme Court recognized back in, you know, a long time ago when they decided Marbury versus Madison. We don't have an army. We survive by virtue of people believing that we should survive. We It'd get be our scared legitimacy. If the Supreme Court did have an army to enforce it. It certainly uh, would. I mean, can you imagine current Tom, Clarence Thomas, general and field marshal, <laughs> sending a battalion in to well, enforce uh, a Supreme Court decision? Uh, I remember Brown versus Board of Education, too, when Earl Warren sent the National Guard to enforce... Uh, well, it was, it was Dwight Eisenhower, actually. I don't think Earl Warren... No. Well, Earl Warren's opinion said we're going to use oh. the National Guard to do it because yeah, Brown recommended Board of Education it high won. Yeah, but, <laughs> yes, but then he Dwight Eisenhower pulled general the trigger, Warren. right? Exactly. I mean, yeah, these are these are the, the, the big political issues of our time. As I said in the intro here, Biden's uh, center, the center of Biden's, uh, you know, uh, presidency year two, three, uh, year two, three and four is going to be redefined by his, his reelection campaign. But years two and three in the center are going to be Biden versus the Supreme Court. Year one has been COVID. In, and COVID recovery in the economy and that we're going to get out of that. We're going to wrap it up by 2020, January 2022. People won't even remem- remember what COVID was. They'll just think, oh, yeah, Biden beat it, I guess, because he was president when it kind of ended. Uh, and we did finally start forcing people to get vaccinated to go anywhere. Uh, and it's OK. Um, and then we're going to think we're going to be sitting around thinking, you know, is Mitch McConnell actually being successful in in disrupting, you know, the, the Biden uh, agenda? And I think that the Supreme Court taking drastic steps like under undercutting Roe v. Wade, they're not going to overturn it. They're not going to do this fetal uh, uh, personhood thing, but they are going to say that you can have pre-viability restrictions, in my opinion. I think that's what is going to happen. They're going to assemble five uh, conservatives without John Roberts, and they're going to say pre-viability restrictions on abortion are not an undue burden, or they're going to change the standard and say we don't need an undue burden standard in this case. Either way, um, 
they're not going to outlaw abortion in California uh, or New York, but they are going to say that Mississippi and, and Texas can outlaw abortion uh, pre-viability uh, for other very important medical reasons, blah, 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 justifications, blah, blah, blah. And that's going to be the 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 law of the land moving forward that uh, in these states where abortion is basically already illegal because they make it so difficult and there are so few providers in those states, it will actually be not just de facto, but de jure uh, or de jure is Latin, I don't know, uh, il- actually by law illegal in those places. And then we're going to have to see, is that enough backlash to get Joe Manchin off his butt and say, OK, we're going to uh, get rid of the filibuster. OK. Let's get the Judiciary Act of 2021 in here and for the, you know, ninth time in American history, change the size of the Supreme Court because the Republicans, you know, packed it with a bunch of people who don't reflect the opinions of the American people. So we're on a roll, a Supreme Court roll. We're going to keep rolling because we're going to talk about the Supreme Court's action with respect to unanimous votes to convict uh, accused criminals. Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Roy Lopes. And I'm Connor Rooks. So, the United States Supreme Court has weighed in on an interesting issue. Um, most folks understand that, uh, whereas in... I don't, but go on. Well, it's it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a criminal, uh, accused criminal, and, and you're facing the jury, they have to agree unanimously right. that you're guilty. Similarly, they have to agree unanimously that you're not guilty. I don't know how many viewers uh, of the pod, that is, listeners of the pod, uh, remember 12 Angry Men. Famous stage Henry play. Henry Ford classic for the 1950s. Hen- f- exactly. Famous, I believe, stage play and then movie. That was Buddy Hackett, by the way, not Henry Ford. Okay. I don't know who any of these people are, but I believe you. And <laughs> I believe you unquestioningly, and that's my problem. Um, wherein 11 jurors want to convict and there's one lone, you know, holdout who's, who's holding the line and says, no, I don't think this guy's guilty. And slowly but surely, spoilers, he converts more and more people to his side. And if not, you know, not for the, the, the fact that criminal defendants must be convicted unanimously, we have a very different stage play. Yeah. So what's happened is that, uh, you know, it's a universal, near universal rule in the United States. If you're going to convict, it has to be a unanimous vote. But then Louisiana and Oregon came along and they said, you know, why? What if what? we get some sort of pinko liberal ten, on ten the court? 10 to 2 would yeah. be good. 11 to 1. They should still go to prison for the rest of their lives. Now, 7 to 5? Now, Connor, I get Louisiana uh, sure. going this way because they don't cotton to criminals down in Louisiana. But Oregon? Yeah, right. I mean, I happen Seriously. to know that I've heard the mayor of Portland and so on. Come on down, guys. Ride all you want because yeah. it's justified. You know, this is justified angry. But for whatever reason, Oregon joined Louisiana as the only two states that allowed non unanimous votes. Remember, uh, the Pacific Northwest was the home of the, I can't even remember what the family's name was. but Exploding that, Whale? That, yeah, famous, a famous uh, story. But the, the uh, takeover of the federal uh, lands, you know, office uh, by those uh, cowboy type uh, homegrown terrorists who had oh, I that- thought that was Nevada. Oh, I, I don't remember. One of those uh, maybe states, I'm, maybe smaller I'm, than I'm California. I'm pretty sure it was Oregon, uh, or maybe Washington. But you know, the Pacific Northwest is you know right next to the Midwest, and there's a the massive frontier split. mentality. The, yeah, the massive split is not between in, in American politics. The massive split is not between uh, you know Washington and Nevada, or Oregon and Nevada, or Washington and California or Nevada. 
it's between cities and rural areas. Largely, those are the divisions. And there yeah. are lots of rural areas. No, you're right. You're right. In Oregon. So here's here's their retroactivity issue. The U.S. Supreme Court comes along and says, uh, Louisiana, Oregon, nice try. You know, we, we respect your uh, your motivations and all that. But you're wrong. You have to keep Hooray. the rule of unanimous criminal uh, votes by jury. It is better to let a uh, hundred guilty men go free than to convict an innocent one. There you go. And so then thousands of convicted criminals rotting in prison in Louisiana and Oregon on 11, to, a big 11 to 1 and 10 to yeah. 2 verdicts. The, yeah, who were put there on non-unanimous Even though there were two votes. people on the court in the jury room shouting, he's innocent! Right. And still put him in prison. They, they, they let out a shout of glee when yeah. they heard about this Supreme Court decision yeah. in their Supreme Court reporter uh, that they got on the internet because they have wonderful Wi-Fi. And they, they said, don't. we'd like a new trial. <laughs> Judge, please give us a new trial. And if the jury convicts us unanimously, so be it. Yeah. We won't be much happier than we are now, but uh, we'll be happier. And the Supreme Court said no. Why did they say no? Yeah. Because they said law, uh, rulings like this are not retroactive. Now, right. they don't apply to past uh, situations. So the question, Connor, is why would the Supreme Court say that? It, I, I've had a bunch of cases in my practice where... If a statute is passed by the legislature, it is deemed to only affect the future because, after all, if somebody did something two years ago and a new statute is passed that says this act that was done two years ago is illegal, it's not really fair to the person or the company who was following the law as it stood two years ago to say, oh, our new law applies retroactively. As a matter of fact, the Constitution says there shall be no ex post facto laws, which means no retroactive law. But by contrast, the opinions of appellate courts are perceived as sort of the revealed wisdom, that which has always been true, that which we always should have recognized as true. And thus, a court decision is often applied retroactively right. way to the past, back to the past. So the question is, why in the world would the Supreme Court in this case say, oh, we're not going to apply this rule retroactively? Yeah. And I'm wondering if it relates to the point we were talking about before. Maybe the Supreme Court, whether it's eye on public opinion, doesn't like the idea of thousands of criminals rotting in Louisiana and Oregon jails getting new trials, incredible taxpayer expense. And now when they get released because they don't get the unanimous uh, vote and then they commit more crimes and people are going to say, we yeah. blame the Supreme Court yeah. for that. So first things first, right off the bat, you have uh, uh, the point you just made there is they, they don't just go, go free. If you get a hung jury, say a 10 to 2, uh, and you they cannot resolve it, um, and that was the final result, um, they, they're, the, the state is going to argue um, uh, that in any situation where you get a hung jury, they try again. There will be a new trial with a new jury panel. They start all over again, and they keep going uh, until they get one. Um, uh, that that is able to actually decide, um, as I understand it. Maybe there's some limit on how many hung juries you can have before you just go free. I don't know. Um, I, yeah, ask ask a criminal lawyer, I guess. Um, we get we we need another lawyer in here. We don't have too many lawyers yet. We need another lawyer. So um, the the uh, the in this case, you have that question of w would they just go free? And the answer is almost certainly not. In in, in as my as I understand it, uh, the proposition would be that they would get new trials and that that they would have to be found uh, guilty unanimously or uh, free unanimously, innocent unanimously. So once we're past that issue of, of are they just going to walk out of the prison tomorrow? No. Um, the uh, next question is about retroactivity of Supreme Court decisions. Generally, that comes from uh, I not comes from, but the, it, it was it was importantly discussed in 1965. There was a case called Robinson 
And the Robinson case in 1965, I think, maybe it was in the 70s, I think it was in the 65, um, said generally the uh, there is retroactivity for Supreme Court decisions. You do go backwards and look uh, uh, and look backwards because the Supreme Court is not there to write a new law. They're there to reveal that which was the law all along by correct interpretation. If somebody has misinterpreted the law, that's one thing. But the Supreme Court is not passing new legislation. They're not changing the status quo. They're just there to say what the status quo really is. And you guys just didn't understand it yet. Now, is that a silly rose tinted uh, view of the Supreme Court? Obviously. Does the Supreme Court change the law? Yeah, all the time. Like it, That's what it does constantly. And to say that its interpretations are only interpretations of existing law, and thus we're not really applying a new law retroactively. We're just uh, saying that this was the law all the time and you guys applied it wrong. And therefore, it's fine to change the status quo and go back and fix things once we apply it retroactively. Th- that's a silly view. Obviously, it, it is silly. And and the court has 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 accepted that that is a silly view in one. You could say that maybe the court accepted that's a silly view or the court uh, was increasingly taken over by conservatives who wanted to dampen down the ability of progressive justices to change the status quo. And therefore, they just came up with new rules that restrict uh, or that they can point to uh, restrictions on their own and say, oh, I'm handcuffed here. I can't do retroactivity because X, Y, Z. So the new rule after um, uh, the the cases in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, basically the end of the the liberal period of the Warren Court, the Earl Warren Court, uh, that, as we talked about earlier, did things like Brown versus Board of Education, massive, uh, uh, you know, uh, liberal moves. Um, after that, the, con- the court got much more conservative. And the uh, the court said, well, we're only going to do retroactivity if there are certain uh, important factors that we, you know, we ba- do a weighing and we do a balance of the factors and we say, is it, does it infringe on people's interest? Do we, does it make the world a better place? Blah, blah, blah. It sounds like that'd be liberal, right? It sounds like the court would then have more discretion. But since the court had complete discretion to do retroactivity before that, placing any limits on themselves at all uh, is actually a tool for uh, conservatives to say, well, this is the reason we're not doing retroactivity. Well, and yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not imputing any evil intent necessarily to those. You you can say that people that conservatives really did say, look, just wildly running around enacting the retroactive law is dangerous, right? That that's bad. We we don't want to undo uh, uh, things willy nilly, um, and we really should be weighing the consequences uh, of what we do. And so. You know, I can see that. I personally don't think that's the the reason. I don't give the Supreme Court the benefit of the doubt. I don't think one of the most powerful institutions in American history needs my deference and benefit of the doubt. I can be suspicious, as suspicious of them as I want, and they'll be fine. So uh, it's not a problem. In this case, um, it really, to me, comes down to, you know, why did the Supreme Court do this to these prisoners? Why did the Supreme Court decide that these prisoners didn't? Uh, get new trials. It's because the Supreme Court doesn't really care about the rights of incarcerated people. Well, the maybe, conservative movement controls but, the Supreme Court, especially nowadays. But even you know, for the last fifty years, and generally, incarcerated people, uh, the rights of uh, of students to have you know free speech in schools, uh, anybody in any sort of institution, it's just very easy for somebody like a Supreme Court justice uh, to say, well, anybody who's suffering under the status quo uh, deserves it. They got what they deserved, and they deserve to keep well, rotting it's in hard prison. To ev- 
evaluate their motivations. Of course, you may absolutely. be right. It's but, impossible. But from my perspective, it's just so frustrating and squishy. This issue of retroactivity. You would think that people would be entitled to more of a bright line test. And let, let me yeah. give you an example okay. here in California: uh, Is a worker an employee or an independent contractor? Right. It's a huge issue. Yeah. If you're an employee, you have all sorts of rights. You can't be fired easily. You get your expenses reimbursed. Yeah. Uh, you get overtime. Uh, you get all sorts of wage and hour privileges. It's, it's a huge deal. If you're an independent contractor, which traditionally has been a situation where you're kind of your own boss, you're not under the thumb of the person who hires you. You do things when you want to do them in the way you want to do them. Then you're an independent contractor and you don't get your expenses is reimbursed and right. you're not entitled to overtime. Right. So there's a huge difference. There's a bright line between independent contractor and employee. Now, the California Supreme Court a few years ago came along and said, you know what? Virtually everybody is an employee. Mm -hmm. And they did say, well, if you, um, if you are working in the same field as the person who hired you, mm -hmm. you automatically are an employee. Yeah, this is a case called Dynamex. Dynamex, right. Even though uh, you are totally your own boss, you sure. don't have to wear a uniform, mm -hmm. you don't have to show up in the morning, you take lunch or vacation whenever you want, you handle things as you want, you use the, the methods. Every The time, place, and manner, you are the king or queen of your castle. Yeah, and those are totally irrelevant factors. They don't matter at all. What matters is the new Dynamex test. Are you in the same business yeah. that your employer is? And for example, insurance agents. Insurance agents, in many contexts, have traditionally been, been considered independent contractors because they are their own boss, right. set their own hours, and so on. Knock but, on your door. Hey, would you like to buy some insurance? Yeah. They show up at work whenever they want to. They right. sell to their friends and family. They wear whatever clothes right. they want to. But guess what? Dynamex comes along and says, oh, insurance agents work in the same field as the insurance company that retained their services. Automatically, they are employees. Right. Okay, you can argue against that and say you don't like their decision yeah. if you want. But then it turns out the decision is retroactive. So now, not only insurance agents, but every worker who uh, was considered to be an independent contractor, uh, and and there were lots of there and was has lots been of evidence treat, treated wrongly for the last couple of years. And has not been paid overtime and right. has not been right, paid right, expenses. Right. Suddenly, they have a right to run into court and say, "Oh, since you made your decision retroactive." Yep. We get all of these goodies in the past. Yeah. So as they say, it's it's oh, kind of it's a kind huge, of frustrating. It's a huge problem. And there are absolutely absolutely and there always will be, but there are absolutely people who are going to be beneficiaries of a law of a legal change. Uh, that is aimed at protecting a certain group of people, but sort of accidentally ends up uh, protecting or giving extra beneficial uh, rights and, and uh, rights of recovery uh, to a bunch of people who really don't need it. Now, if you look at a lot of insurance agents, uh, hypothetically, to use your example here, um, you know, maybe you're an insurance salesman who's making an agent who's making like a million bucks a year and you drive two Bentleys and sometimes you ride on a private jet and you've got seven employees underneath you and you are for all intents and purposes, this massively successful independent contractor who's totally apart from the insurance company. And then the court says, by the way, because you're in the same insurance industry, and really, insurance industry doesn't function without you guys, it's unfair that the insurance company has been treating you like an independent contractor and not uh, giving you, paying you overtime and benefits and reimbursing you for expenses and whatever else. That millionaire then gets to run into court and file a lawsuit. And that feels terrible. That is messed up. But it's also an individual, it's a, it's a, it's an unavoidable 
uh, unavoidable outcome that there will be people who get benefits who don't deserve them in order to reach as many of the people who do need those benefits and who do deserve uh, compensation of some kind as possible. And it's kind of like this flip side of what we talked about in criminal law earlier, this idea of, well, it's better to let, you know, uh, guilty men go free than it is to, uh, many guilty men go free than it is to convict one innocent one, right? If you have one person who is you know, terribly uh, abused by this independent contractor versus employee distinction. For all reality-based purposes, they are absolutely an employee, and they should have gotten benefits and reimbursement for their expenses, and they got taken advantage of by their bosses, um, and they worked hours and hours and hours of overtime, and their bosses just said, oh, you're an independent contractor, so I can make you work as much overtime as I want, and I don't have to pay uh, you extra money, and dodge labor laws, and it's really messed up, and it's bad. In order to get that person a right of recovery, you might accidentally or knowingly because it's inevitably going to happen open up pandora's box a bit and allow a couple of millionaire insurance agents to try to run into court and file lawsuits as well and that you know in my mind is the corollary it's the flip side of the let guilty you know let the like guilty men go free in order to protect the rights of an innocent man. because a, an innocent person rotting in prison or a person who's been brutally taken advantage of by an employer who abused the independent contractor versus employee distinction that person's rights are so important that I'm going to allow some kind of frivolous lawsuits to also happen, uh, which can be defended in court. And there's, you know, there's, there's recompense in this situation. And you can fight them every, uh, every which way. And you can go back to the Supreme Court and you can say, look, Dynamex, is selling insurance really the same as providing insurance? You know, it's not like realtors are independent contractors. Uh, aren't independent contractors not like realtors are employees of the people who are they're, they're selling the houses of you know agents who sell stuff might be a little bit different and real estate agents might be a little bit different and they might re you know uh, address and re-narrow or pass a law and fix this thing these are not unsolvable problems so when society makes great leaps forward sometimes the leaps you know there's collateral damage but in my mind yeah, it's acceptable. So we're going to leap to uh, the smartest and stupidest presidents. We uh, weren't able to get to every topic we wanted to get to. We'll get yeah. to the rest next week. But uh, so you, you get to guess here, Connor. Uh, okay. So first of all, um, start what's with the, the smartest. Source? Who who say historians who have historians. evaluated okay. by totally objective based on intelligent absolutely quote, intelligence quotient factors. They look at them giving speeches, yeah, writings, and 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 this and that. So okay, who are you okay. going to guess? Uh, I'm going to tell you the the three smartest presidents in our history. You tell me who you think might be in that list, and uh, we'll see. Okay, okay. How, how about close it, you are. It, so you want me to give the the three I think that will win? Yeah. Um, okay. The smartest three, the yeah, yeah, three yeah, yeah, smartest yeah, yeah, yeah. presidents in history. This is tough. This is tough because there are a lot of dumb dumbs out there. Um, a lot of dumb dumbs. Oh, we're going to get to those there. in a second. You know, it's it's pretty easy to just say popular presidents, right? Like it would be easy for me to say Lincoln. It would be easy for me to say <clears throat> Washington. <clears throat> it would be easy for me to say uh, whatever. Jefferson. F FDR. FDR. Mm -hmm. um, but... I don't have any reason to believe that they were especially brilliant, you know, IQ wise in terms of ability to do some sort of math or puzzle problem under time constraints, which is what IQ tests test. I mean, well, who was a prolific writer? It's not uh, fair. It's not fair to ask you to guess, Connor, no, because you haven't done the work. The yeah, work I'm not a historian. Stories. So I'm just going to lay these. OK, on. I, uh, let me let me lay out my guesses. OK, just because it'll be fun. OK, uh, Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, George Bush, Jr. 
Okay, no. <laughs> oh, dang it. I so just felt number, like I had him. Number one with a bullet, John Quincy Adams, an IQ really? of 169. Okay, no. <laughs> number two, Thomas <laughs> no. Jefferson, 154, and John Kennedy, 151. These are the three smartest what? presidents. What is it? That, what did they do that, that gave us, like, uh, that? is there some sort of signature where they looked at a writing and said, okay, this guy wrote this great I document? Graph, I don't think graphology came into play. Was it just that they were featured in Hamilton and the act, the the author Could really be. liked it. Now we go to the three stupidest. Okay, presidents. all right, that's Andrew, all we get. Okay, uh, Andrew Jackson, one hundred twenty-six. Yeah, sure. uh, George W. Bush, the son, one hundred twenty-five oh, IQ, and the lowest IQ of them all, Ulysses S. Grant, at one hundred twenty. Well, he just but killed all on his... it. He won the Civil War. Yeah, but he killed all his brain cells with alcohol. Uh, that's very possible. So. Good so to know. A little, I'm gonna, a little right. bit shocking. Next week, uh, at the conclusion of next week's podcast, we're going to tell you where some of the more current presidents fit on the IQ scale. <laughs> Can't wait. Just going to have to wait for that. <laughs> we'll see you next time on Too Many Lawyers. Too Many Lawyers.